Have you ever given much thought for whom you would be willing to die? Who are those people? You know, to be a soldier, we've talked so much about spiritual warfare over the past few weeks, but to be a soldier at its most simple definition means to have a willingness to lay down your life for others. To lay down your life, to give up your life so that other people might be able to continue on living their lives. So as a soldier for Christ, who is it that you would be willing to lay down your life for? I guess every, every soldier, every serviceman that I've ever spoken with would always describe it as you were fighting as much for the lives of the men that were in the war beside you as you were for your own. Our brother Glenn in the video just a few weeks ago alluded to that. That those that are in the foxhole, you felt as much responsibility of getting them home to their families as you did of getting yourself home to your own. And so there's a sense in which you were ready to lay down your life for those back at home. But at the very same time, there was a resolve in your soul to lay down your life for the men that were in the foxhole beside you. You know, in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And do you understand who Jesus is talking about, brothers and sisters? He's talking about one another. You see, all of us, as we were called into the church, as we were called into salvation through Christ Jesus, were at the same time called into a band of brothers. That we stand in the gospel foxhole together, pressing on for one another, and the standard of sacrifice that we have been set for, our, for each other is the standard of the Lord Jesus himself, who went to a rugged cross, spilled his blood, and laid down his life. So John 15, Jesus is saying in the church, when you look in the gospel foxhole to your right, and to your left, there must be in you a love so ferocious, a commitment so fierce, that there is a willingness in your soul to lay down your life to the benefit of your brother and your sister. And so this morning I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want us to look at the unity that we are to have in Christ, a unity and a covenant for which we might be willing to lay down our lives and die. And as you're turning, I want to bring your attention to your bulletin. In your bulletin, you're going to find an insert. That insert is going to have a list of events. We are going to begin emphasizing one of our core values each year. And this year, the core value that we are going to be emphasizing as a church family is the core value of loving one another. I think we have grown so much in loving one another, and yet I want us to grow so much farther. I want this to be the warmest place you can come all week. I want it to be exciting for you. I want it to be exciting for guests as they come looking for a place in the midst of a cold, war, a cold world that they might be able to find warmth and hospitality and love. Let it be right here. 
And so you'll find there a list of events that are going to take place over the next 12 months. And the main purpose, though it may serve another, of each of these events is that we might grow closer in love to one another and go deeper in this covenant that each of us have committed to as members of Iron City Baptist Church. And so it's in that same line of thought that we come to Ephesians 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses together. Would you stand with me as we study God's Word together? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. This morning we have quite a few verses, but what we're going to do is we're going to take the first half, the first six verses. We're going to spend most of our time unpacking those six verses and then just a little bit of time seeing how those six verses come to bear uh, in the, the second half of our text this morning. But Paul opens up by saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy. Now, he's pointing us back to what he's been talking about for three chapters here. Over the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul has been uncovering some of the most profound and glorious truths in all of the universe. He has begun by talking about the election of the church, that you and I, those of us in Christ Jesus, were chosen before the foundation of the world, set apart and signed by the Spirit himself. He has said in chapter 2 that we have, though we were once following after the power of the prince of the air, we have now, by God's mercy, been delivered over to the kindness of God, that by grace, through faith, we have been saved. We have been made new, so that for all of eternity, we might be able to enjoy and taste and revel in the immeasurable kindnesses of God. 
In chapter 3, he has unpacked for us the mystery of the gospel, the profound gospel that can, at the same time, let God remain just and us be justified in Christ Jesus. And so he comes now to chapter 4, and he says, in light of all of that, in light of your election, in light of your salvation by grace through faith, in light of the gospel's mysterious splendor, wonder-working power, in light of all of that, this is how you must now live. This is who you must now be. You must now walk in a way that is worthy of the name of Christ. You must now walk in a way that is worthy of you being a a member of God's church. You must now walk in a way that is worthy to receive the immeasurable kindnesses of God for all eternity. Now, for us that have grown up understanding that salvation is by grace through faith, that it's not by works, for all of us that have grown up understanding that we are in no way worthy of the grace of God, that might make us a little bit nervous for a second, right? Because we know that no man is worthy of the name of Jesus. No man is worthy of being right with God. No man could ever be worthy of the immeasurable kindnesses of God. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is saying is you've already been given those things. Those things are already true of you. That if you are in Christ, you have already been given freely, not by your works, not by who you are, not by your last name, not by what you've done, not by how good you are, but by how good God is and how merciful and gracious God is. All of those things have already been given to you. And now that you abide in Christ and you are one with Christ and the mystery of the gospel has taken hold in your life and the Spirit of God has taken residence in your life, you should now begin to exhibit the character of Christ. That you should begin now living in a way that is worthy of the name of Christ because Christ is in fact in you. And so the goodness of Christ and the majesty of Christ and the grace of Christ and the mercy of Christ begins to take hold and transform you from the inside out so that now you are walking in a way that when people see you, it points them to the Lord Jesus. It points them to his kindness. It points them to his Holiness, it points them to his righteousness. But we have to understand that this is given in the context of the broader passage, right? (coughs) And in the broader passage, Paul, (coughs) forgive me, Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about unity. In fact, again here we see a plural imperative. In other words, he's not saying you walk in in a way that is worthy of your calling. He is saying you all together must walk in a way that is worthy of your calling. That, that you have been called together and now as a church, the way that you are to live this out, the way that you are to walk in a way that is worthy of this calling is that you must unite together, build one another up and walk together, united in grace, united in the gospel, pressing on into the community for gospel goodness and gospel conquest. You see, the New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger Christianity. The New Testament knows nothing of tree stand Christianity. The New Testament knows nothing of podcast 
or TV or living room Christianity where it can just be you and a television or you and a computer or you and even a Bible or you and God's creation and nobody else but you being right with the Lord. Quite simply put, if no other passage does, Ephesians 4 teaches us that we cannot be who God has called us to be. We, in fact, cannot be right with God if we are not a part of his church. That if God has commanded us, as he has in 2 Timothy chapter 4, to preach the word, then every Christian is responsible to hear the word. If in Ephesians 5, Paul has instructed us to uh, address one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, then we must be there to hear them and to sing them also. If Paul, if the New Testament has called us to love one another and to serve one another like Jesus scrubbed the feet of the disciples, how can we do that in our tree stand? How can we do that listening to a podcast? How can we do that sitting in our living room watching a TV preacher? That godliness in the New Testament, to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling of the Lord, to walk in a way that exhibits the grace of Christ, to walk in a way that demonstrates the mystery and the profound glory of the gospel, is to walk together with brothers and sisters in the unity of the world, in the, of the word. For a Christian to try to live in this wor- and to live in this world and to live a good life apart from the church is like trying to run a marathon in the desert without any water. Brothers and sisters, we're running a marathon, aren't we? Life is a marathon. It's exhausting and it's weary. And all of us know that we are living in the midst of a desert land. It's hard days, fallen people, brokenness, pain. Agony, death, grief, bitterness. How can we expect to thrive, let alone survive, if we are living in the midst of this desert land, running this exhausting marathon without the, the one place in which the very fountain of living water resides among his people? church is the gift of grace to us for the sake of our perseverance, for the sake of God's grace in our lives so that over and over and over you might be called to encouragement and called to perseverance and called to repentance and called to maturity and called to growth in the Lord. And so when he comes to verses 2 and 3, that's at the forefront of his mind, that you all must walk in unity together in a way that is worthy of the name of Jesus. And then he gives us, in verses 2 and 3, <coughs> sorry, y'all, in our house, can I just take an aside here? In the last seven days, seven days, we have had stomach virus that has hit Megan, Gracie, and me. We've had pink eye that hit Gracie, Megan, and Sarah, and we've had flu that Gracie has had. That's just seven days, man. We need the grace of the Lord in my house. <laughs> but in verses 2 and 3, 
in verses 2 and 3. He gives us three exhortations, and I think even beneath those things, he gives us three threats that are kind of implied for us toward the unity of the church that we might walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. The first one that I want you to see is that he calls us to walk in humility and gentleness together. He calls us to walk in humility and gentleness <coughs> together. In verse, uh, verse 2 he says, with all humility and gentleness. And notice there's not a comma in your Bible there, right? That those two things are bound together. That those two things are intended to be seen as one unit. That in Paul's mind, uni- uh, humility and gentleness go hand in hand. That humility and gentleness are kind of two sides of the same coin. That wherever you find a humble person, you will at the same time find a gentle person. And it's easy for us to understand that if we would think about the inverse, right? If we think about the inverse, if you think about people that are prideful, when when you meet someone who is prideful, you are at the same time meeting someone who is harsh, right? Someone who is, who is hard on people. Someone who, who looks at you and says, you cannot fail me because I will not fail you. You cannot let me down because I'm certainly never going to let you down. You see, to be a prideful person is to be a person that lives without an understanding of the mercy of God. Humble people understand their need for God's mercy. They understand that they were those who were due the condemnation of God, but instead received the salvation of God. They understand that that they were those that, that God had brought infinite offense to God, and God deserved his anger and wrath to be poured out over them. But instead, God subsided his wrath and provided Christ Jesus. They understand that they were condemned as those following after the powers of the spirit of the air. But instead, by God's mercy, by God's mercy, by his immeasurable kindness, were given the Lord Jesus so that by grace through faith they might be saved. They understand that. And so when you, when you meet a person who lives in light of the mercy of God that was needed in their life, you will meet a person that is gentle with you. That is not looking down their nose at you. That is not looking to to crush you whenever you bring offense. That is not looking to to completely out you every time time you slip up, every time you make a blunder, every time you kind of fall on your face. Instead, you will see someone extending to you their hand, helping you up, dusting you off, cleaning you up. The truth about every person who lacks mercy is that they are a person who thinks too highly of themselves. People that are without mercy are people who do not understand their need for mercy. And so if you find someone who is unmerciful, if you find someone who is harsh, you are at the same time finding someone who is arrogant, cocky, and prideful, among who the Lord says he opposes. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, his word tells us. And so the threat is that we would be harsh with one another. The threat is that we ourselves, as living in the church, would be filled with pride and self-righteousness. That we would, even for moments, forget the mercy of the Lord toward us, and that our tone with one another would be other than gentle. And so bring disunity. So bring division. 
You see, unity and harshness cannot coexist. It cannot coexist. If you've ever been around someone who is harsh, what's the first reaction that you have? I want to be away from that person, right? I want to be away from that person. I want to be away from that person that's always wagging their finger at me. I'm going to be away from that person that can't understand how it is that I could fail. I want to be away from that person that is so good that they look at me and they see me as being worthless and they, themselves as being superior. Unity and harshness will never coexist in the church. You find a church that is filled with harsh members, you will find a church that is filled at the same time with division. Brothers and sisters, as often as we find ourselves leaning toward harshness, as often as we find ourselves leaning toward, toward uh, being want, wanting to, to wag our finger, as often as we want to just crush the spirit of others, let us look to the cross. Let us look to the cross because harshness cannot survive a glance at the cross. At the cross, we remember the mercies of the Lord. At the cross, we remember that it was our sin that put him there. At the cross, we remember that righteousness had to take the place of unrighteousness in our own lives. At the cross, we remember that we brought great offense to God, and yet God was gentle with us. Brothers and sisters, as often as you feel harshness, as often as you feel a growing resentment toward a brother that you want to, to eventually just kind of crush their spirit because it would make you feel good, I, I ask you, I beckon you, look to the cross. Look to the cross and remember mercy. Secondly, he says that we must walk together with patient forbearance. With patient forbearance. He says in and uh, in, in, again in verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, you got to understand what preachers do, okay? Preachers like to address, hopefully most of the time, with gentleness and humility. Preachers like to address negative situations with positive statements. Alright? That's what we like to do. So, so, so Paul is looking to the church in Ephesus and he's saying in light of all of this, be patient, be patient, bear with one another in love. Now, do you know what that means? That means that implied in there is that they were getting irritated with each other. It implied in there means that sometimes there was tension among them. Implied in there means, means sometimes there was a, a tendency toward harshness. It means implied in there means, means sometimes they would, they would take offense to one another and be angry with one another and just want to bail on one another and want to leave one another and just go find somewhere where they didn't have to face such a person as that. You know, as we live together as a church family, and as we grow together as a church family, and as we, we serve together as a church family, I'm going to bet there's going to be some times in which we get kind of frustrated with each other. You think? Like, we're sinners, you know? We're sinners. I mean, sometimes we didn't get a good night's sleep last night, and we're a little bit grouchy today. 
I mean, sometimes we've been with taking care of a, of a daughter with, with a stomach virus, and we've been wiping vomit out of the carpet all night, and we're a little bit edgy that day, right? That sometimes I don't want to hug you. Sometimes I want to key your car and egg your house. Right? There's a threat to unity because all of us have these rough edges and we tend to kind of take them out on each other and get frustrated with each other and then want to bail on each other. But patience is a call to long-suffering. Bearing with one another means to, to stay with each other even in the midst of offenses. Even in the midst of tension. Even in the midst of frustration. Even in the midst of anger. Even in the midst of woundedness. We, we're going to bear with it. We're going to stay with it. We're going to endure in the midst of this. Right? You know, that's why right now we have made... Uh, with our new bylaws, we made the vision and values class mandatory for membership. Because, because there's, a, there's a, a, a front-end commitment that needs to be made, right? There's a front-end commitment. What I have found is that most people are a part of a church covenant. They have entered into covenant with other people, and they have no idea what kind of covenant they've committed to. Now, can you imagine getting married that way? That I'm going to make some vows to you, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you, but I'm not really sure what those things are, right? And so we take about six weeks and we, we teach you what, that, what you would be committing to before you kind of sign your name on the dotted line. So that you kind of know what you're, you're getting into. Because you know what a covenant is? A covenant is a front-end commitment that acknowledges a future weakness, a covenant is a front-end commitment before the Lord that acknowledges a future weakness. It acknowledges that one day I might want to back away. One day I might have a bad day and want to leave. One day things might be tough, things might be hard, and I might want to leave all of that behind. But I've entered into a covenant. I've made a commitment that through thick and thin I'm in. Mountaintops and valleys, I'm in. Good days and bad days, I'm in. Offense and enjoyment, I'm in. You hurt my feelings, still in. You made me mad, still in. You wounded me, still in. That's what a marriage covenant is, right? When we get married, the vows aren't so much for that moment. You realize that? On the wedding day, everybody's fired up. Except Julia Roberts, right? She's got sneakers. But on the wedding day, everybody's fired up. Everybody's feeling it. Everybody feels good about what's happening on the wedding day. But the vows that you make are about a, a future commitment. The vows that you're making to one another in the, in the marital covenant are about future weakness. That I know that in goodness, I'm, in good, I'm going to want to be with you. But in, but in difficulty, I may want to bail. So I'm just going to tell you up front that I'm just going to be in. That, that, that in prosperity, I'm going to want to be with you. But in poverty, I may want to bail. So I'm just going to tell you on the front end that in, in, in poverty, I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you right now. I'm going to sign my name on the dotted line. I'm in. In health, I may want to hang out. We're going to have a good time, man. We're going to go on a, a Bahama cruise and live it up and, and, and swim in the pool and eat the food. But in, 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 in sickness, 
when I've got to hold the barf bag in sickness, when you can't serve me in any way in sickness, when my life is completely built around serving you and helping, I may want to bail. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you on the front end, but just acknowledging the possibility of future weakness that I'm in. I'm committed in sickness and in help. I'm all, I'm all in. Brothers and sisters, that's what it's to look like in the church when we come into covenant with one another. That's what it's to look like in the church when we, when we join with one another. It's the acknowledgement of, of long-suffering because, you know, patience is love's most difficult expression, right? Patience is love's most difficult expression. Have you ever met someone that enjoys patience? You ever met someone that is thankful that they're having to be patient with a prodigal child? Have you ever met a wife who is thankful that she's having to be patient with an immature husband? Patience is long-suffering grace. It's long-suffering love. It's love that is truly unconditional. That says, even when you've hurt me, I'm in. Even, even when you've wandered away and you've went into the depths of Sodom, I will wait on you. Even when your heart has left mine, my heart has not left you, and I will wait on you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endure. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going I'm to bear this. I'm going to bear with you. One of the most sacred, perhaps the most sacred rule followed by our servicemen is no man left behind. Throughout the history of our nation, there have been countless men that have given or sacrificed or uh, endangered their lives to go and to find a fallen comrade or one who is trapped with no chance of getting out to try to perform a rescue and an extraction to get them away. And you know what? The church would be, do well to adopt the same rule. That even if it's sacrificial to me, even if it means the sacrifice of my, pre of my preference, even if it means the sacrifice of my own feelings, even if it means the sacrifice of me being able to exercise my own offense, even if it means me falling on my own sword, then I will do what I must do to wait on you. I'm in this with you. Through thick and thin, through good and bad, even to my own detriment, I care about what happens to you in the long term. It matters to me. Church, I can tell you for sure, without a doubt, that if you're going to last in a church for a long time, if you're going to be in the same church for a period of decades, not a period of months, it will require patience. It will require long-suffering. It will require forgiveness. It will require you having long-suffering grace where you just say through thick and thin, because thin days will come. The evil day will come. The demons will come at our window. But we must stand fast for one another because of our commitment to each other in the Lord. Thirdly, Paul says that we must walk together eagerly seeking unity. Eagerly seeking unity. He says unity in the spirit. Look at, look at it with me in verse 4. Verse 3, I'm sorry, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love this. So Paul is up front saying, this unity has nothing to do with you, really. 
the way that you all got together, the calling of the Lord, the, uni- the, the, the way that you were initially united to each other really has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the work of the Spirit in you. That each of you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God being dwelt in each of you has bound you with one another. So, seek to maintain that. Seek to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given. Seek to live out and exemplify how the Lord is moving in both of your lives and calling you to a common, a common mission and a common body and a common place. Seek to, to maintain that and to live that out and to demonstrate that to the glory of the Lord. And so he's calling us to seek out the unity that he has given us. Now, what I love about that is there seems to be a play on words here. All right, so, so Paul has just told us to do what? He's just told us to be patient, to bear with one another, right? Long-suffering. And yet the word eager, you know what it means there? Impatient. Be impatient. So, so here's what he's saying. Be patient with one another and be impatient with being divided from one another. Be, be, be patient so that, that, so that you, you might still maintain the unity. And at the same time, but when there's, when there's discord, when there's division, when there's, when there's an issue, when there's tension between you and a brother or you and a sister, be impatient with reconciling with them. That there ought to be, an, when, when, when something's not right between you and a, and a member of your church, when something's not right with you, between you and a brother or a sister, then there ought to be an anxiousness in your soul to be right with them again. It, it ought to be one of those things like, I can't make amends fast enough. I can't be right with them again fast enough. That there's an anxiety in my soul. There's an eagerness in my soul. There's an impatience in me to be reconciled with you. And so I want to do whatever I can do within the confines of the scriptures, within the confines of of who the Lord is. I want to do everything in me to be at unity with you. Now, can you imagine if the church adopted that? Let's just put the church down for a second. Can you imagine if husbands and wives adopted that? Because you know the call to love one another is to call to love really all Christians. You got Christians living in your house if you're here tonight, today probably, right? If, if you're a Christian couple, then you have the responsibility to love one another as Christ loved the church, right? In the, in the confines of marriage, in the confines of parenting. Like what, what if we applied this principle? That it so disturbs me at being at odds with you that I am anxious, I am impatient with being right with you again. So let me do whatever I need to do. In his book, uh, Peacemaking for Families, Ken Sandy says that there are three biblical peacemaking responses given to us in the Bible. That when we're at conflict with one another... Maybe it's somebody in our church. Maybe it's, it's, it's uh, our spouse. Maybe it's a Christian that we work with. But when we, are, when we are at odds with one another and we're at conflict with one another, that, that the responsibility is not just to be a peacekeeper. It's not to be a peace pretender. It's to be a peacemaker, right? And that there are three peacemaking responses given to us in the Bible. The first would be immediate forgiveness. That you, you bring offense to me. You bring hurt to me, and my response is I immediately give you forgiveness. I'm not even going to bring it up. Not even going to talk to you about it. I'm going to overlook it. I'm just going to immediately forgive you, move about, and you and I are never going to be at odds with one another. 
You and I are never going to be, you and I are never going to be in discord. For a more serious offense, we would go to the second peacemaking response, that there would be, there would be a gracious discussion. That we would sit down and we would say with, with gentleness and with humility, with an eagerness to maintain the unity, with bearing with one another in patience, that we would sit down and say, let's just talk about this for a second. Let's talk, I, this, when you talk, this is what I heard. You said this, and this is, this is kind of what I thought that meant. Can you kind of unpack that for me? Can you help me? Because I, I took offense to that, I, I, or, I, or I felt like that was kind of maybe in, in an uncharitable spirit. I kind of felt, and, I, and, I, and right now, I think you and I are at odds. And sometimes, frankly, it, it requires a gracious confrontation. And other times, it requires us going to that person and repenting, right? Going to that person and saying, look, I blew it. I understand that you and I are at odds one another, and I want you to know I take ownership of that. I should not have said, I, I, I was wrong when I did. And by the way, when you're apologizing to somebody, don't ever say, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel that way, right? I, I, I'm, I, I, don't, don't let yourself out from under it. Well, well I, I'm sorry that you're offended that I said. Like, that's not an apology, right? If you brought offense, own it. Own it. And then the final one is the least frequent, but it's a negotiation. It's where you, you bring in a mediator, perhaps a counselor, and you kind of get in. You're, you're really at odds with each other. Maybe it's a, it's a lawsuit situation. Maybe it's a, man, we're cruising toward divorce, and we've got we to do something. But it's to bring in a Christian mediator to help you bring in a gospel negotiation to, to kind of bring unity and reconciliation back. But you know what Sandy says? He says that the overwhelming majority of conflict between Christians should fall in the first category. The overwhelming majority should be immediate forgiveness. Proverbs not, Proverb 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, that's the opposite of what we see in our world today. In, in our world today, what do we see? We see people that stack up the offenses. They keep records of all of the wrongs. We have married couples probably here tonight, and you can say every wrong that has happened in your marriage, every failing of your husband for the last 25 years. And there's not much unity between you. We have children in here today, maybe grown adult children here, and you can name every single failure of your parents over the entirety of your life. And there's no unity between you. We come into church and we bring the same attitude among our church family. And there's, there's discord, and we're, we're almost ready, looking, seeking to be offended, seeking to be forgotten, seeking to be neglected, seeking whatever thing. And man, there's, there's an offense there, and so we're just kind of stacking them up and stacking them up and stacking them up. But it is to the glory of the wise man to overlook the offense. It is to the glory of the wise man, it is to the credit of Christ, when the kind of grace exists in your life, that you can offer immediate forgiveness. Let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people. Those are the kind of people you want to hang out with, right? Those are the kind of people that you want to spend time with. As we come in to verse 6, we, 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Paul is calling us and he's bringing us to the big picture. And he's saying, I'm not calling you to arbitrary unity. I'm not calling you to some arbitrary moral concept. I'm calling you to come and to realize your eternal objective reality. There is only one body. There is only one faith. There is only one unity before the Trinitarian God who has united himself. You are together. So live as those who are. Live out the unity that you have in the gospel. Live out the unity that you have been given in the Lord. You are all branches of the same vine. You are all abiding in the same Christ. Live out as though you are. Division dilutes the message of the church. If the gospel preaches unity, the church must not preach division. That among one another we are able to communicate the oneness of the gospel, the reconciliation that a sinner can have with Almighty God when we ourselves are united together. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives us the command, as Rhonda said in the video, Jesus gives us the command to love one another. And he says, by loving one another, the world will know you are my disciples. But church, when there is division among us, when there is a refusal to endure and to be patient, when there is an, a lack of an eagerness to be unified with one another, when that is there, we are like gospel repellent. Let us be together so that there is unity in our message, unity in our body, so that people know there is unity available to them in the Lord. As we come to the second half of our text, he begins to talk in terms of gifts. He begins to, to talk about how it is that the church now, now moves forward in light of this unity. How the, how the church is now pressing on. Okay, so, so you're unified now. You're, you're, you're demonstrating what it like. You're, you're walking in a way that is, that is worthy of the calling of the Lord. You're walking in that together. So what does that look like in the church? How is that now lived out? What is the end to which that is aimed? In verse, uh, verse 12, he says, to equip the saints, for, or I'm sorry, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ. You hear what he says? He talks in terms of gifts. He says, your pastors have been given to you. Your church leaders have been given to you so that they might build you up in the, in the gospel. So they might strengthen you for the work of the ministry. So that then in turn you might be gifts to one another. So your pastors are gifts to you so that they might raise you up in the gospel, sharpen you in the gospel, equip you for the work of the ministry. So then you might serve one another with your gifts, investing in one another, being gifts to each other that you might ma attain maturity. That's the, that's the goal, right? That's the word. He, th think about how many different ways he says this. He says, build up to mature manhood. No longer be children. He says that we must, in verse 15, he says that we must grow up. That the goal that we have is to grow as, as strong as we can grow so that then we can reinvest the gospel in one another that our brother might grow as strong as he can grow. 
And that our sister might grow as strong as she can grow. That our church at that time might simultaneously grow as strong as she can grow. What Paul is calling us to here is ownership of one another. Ownership of one another. That we must take responsibility. We must take ownership of one another's maturity. We must take ownership of one another's godliness. It has to matter to each of us how godly the others are. It has to matter to each of us how, what opportunities toward maturity and discipleship everybody else has. We are responsible for one another. We are responsible for building up the body in love. We are responsible for building up the body to mature manhood. We are responsible for allowing the body to grow up in the admonition of the Lord. We are responsible, every single one of us, so that if our children and teenagers are blown to and fro by the winds of the world, it's on us. If our retirees are content to waste their finishing years, it's on all of us. We are in this together. Have you ever considered that on the judgment day, you will give an account for the godliness of your church? Have you ever given consideration that when you stand before the Lord at the great throne of judgment and he asks you and give, to give an account of your life, that you will give an account for the maturity and the godliness of the members of your church family? Think to Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches. The ones you know that he talks about you have forsaken your, your, your first love or you're lukewarm and so I, I spit you out of your mouth. Or you have wickedness not outside the church but inside the church in Thyatira, right? If you th- think about who he's addressing those to. To members of the church. Who are the epistles? Who's First and Second Corinthians addressed to? The church. Who has the responsibility for church discipline to to maintain the the holiness and the purity of the church? The members of the church. Brothers and sisters, you are responsible for each other. You are your brother's keeper. And I love that he does not hide from us that this is work. Equip you for the work of of the ministry so that in the end at the end the end goal being what he says in verse 16 that you might be built up in love all of us know that love is always hard work isn't it true love real love unconditional love is always hard work a few weeks ago in the video with Glenn when we asked him how do you prepare a young man for war? He talks about how I had to do everything to make sure I was as ready as I could be because my brother's well-being was dependent on me. And then at the same time, I had to do everything I could do to help my brother succeed because my well-being was dependent upon him. Church, we are a band of brothers. We are in this together. We are in the gospel foxhole, pursuing gospel conquest. Let us do everything in our power to build one another up in love. That as each brother and sister steps out of this life and into the moment in which they will face the Lord, they are prepared to give an account for a church that is with all of their heart and with all of their fervency went after the Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together.